Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Radio Show for February 2020. We're recording this on the 28th of February. Industry news for this month. Um, I'd like to start with Travelex. Um, I've mentioned this to a few people and not, not everyone's heard of this story or Travelex. So Travelex are a foreign exchange uh, company. They have um, lots of booths in airports around the world. You go and uh, change your dollars for pounds or whatever. Also, they provide um, those same foreign currency exchange services for major financial institutions like, um, I think, Lloyds and Barclays, and certainly UK banks and probably banks around the world as well. Um, Been going quite a while. They're kind of, I I guess, sort of their, their come out of that same space as American Express used to have that traveler's check market sewn up, and it's kind of, as that's kind of changed as technology's improved over the years. Um, Travelex, uh, yeah, they're probably probably something you don't necessarily notice, but if you look at an airport concourse, you'll see one of their booths. I don't think it's an amazingly strong brand. They might have good recognition, perhaps, but it's one of these things. It's almost like these expensive petrol stations at services. You you don't love them, do you? And it's the same with Travelex. They're almost they're they're taking advantage of the fact that you haven't sorted your currency out at the airport and making the most of it. That, that, that is exactly it. Yeah, there, there's um, when when the situation happened, there was lots of snarking comments about poor exchange rates, and um, because, because that's the whole point. You know, you, you're you're not getting good value for your for your pounds or dollars or whatever by going to Travelex. Um, and nowadays, you know, to be honest, it's if, certainly if you're a UK person, it's easier just to take money out of the wall anyway. Um, this is for this is kind of almost legacy stuff where you didn't have access to banks when you were traveling. Well, now everyone does, or it's, it's contentless payments or, or whatever. Yeah, maybe a bit of a dinosaur and certainly not loved. So what happens to Travelex? If you could describe this story in a nutshell, what actually happened to Travelex? So Travelex's online um, services uh, were compromised in some way by um, uh, some hackers who proceeded to encrypt their entire network as it would seem so kind of similar to the to the infamous or famous not petty attack from a couple of years ago which um affected mask and um certainly the, the nhs in the uk They're, they were held to ransom please pay us six million dollars of bitcoin or whatever to have your systems un- unencrypted they didn't pay that ransom this happened on new year's eve um they didn't pay that ransom quite rightly. I mean, that is official guidance is you don't pay these things. Um, so, and they've proceeded to rebuild their entire business from scratch in terms of technology. They are back working online, available as of a couple of weeks ago. Interestingly, they haven't made a big song and dance about it. Possibly other things in the news have, have kind of sort of taken, taken the focus, but it hasn't been noticed that they're back almost really. There, there's no big press release or anything about it. They were offline for an awful long time, though, weren't they? They were, they were down for s- six, seven weeks, yeah, uh, unable. And that also, because they were a service provider themselves, affected the ability of um, banks in the UK and probably around the world to be able to 
provide travel service, travel money services for their customers as well. So quite a big impact. There was a short-term impact on end um, customers as well in the sense that they, they ordered money which they then couldn't um, collect. Um, so that obviously impacted people's travel plans at the start of the year over a busy time. And yeah, and they didn't handle it very well. Um, I think it's safe to say they've... Um, uh, it's not been a very public um, approach very different to say how British British, uh, British Airways ha- um, handled their breach from a couple of years ago. Um, actually, sorry, sorry, it was last August. Um, BA were very, very upfront about that and did all the right things at the right time. Um, Travelex, not quite the case. I, well, I don't know. I disagree. It depends how you define handling. Basically, they decided not to succumb to a ran- to ransom, to blackmail. So, you know, I think they've had the support of the authorities the whole way through the process, haven't they? And they don't exactly yeah. have the brand that BA has. So, no, the... I, think it was, I think perhaps it, what I was referring to was more around the fact that they weren't very public about it. They, they weren't coming out and providing updates and, and, and so on. They were probably, I would imagine, over, just simply overwhelmed by, <laughs> you know, you've lost your entire network, so you've got no email, you've got no network you've got no business information or anything. So you can't, it's actually quite hard on those circumstances even to get a message out. Your PR system is down because, you know, there's, there's no one there. Um, they've always been a fairly private company anyway. I was looking at their, um, at their website, which is now back up, and press updates, the last press update was at the beginning of 2019. So it's not that they're really in the news very much anyway. AJ, you say it's bad publicity for Travelex, and I completely agree with that. But when you actually Google Travelex news, one of the articles on the Times is actually a job advert for Revil, the ransomware team that did the Travelex hacking. So they've actually spun it around in the case of, look, we are gurus here. If you want to come and work for us and speak fluent Russian, <laughs> look at look at our portfolio of what we've done. Right. They've got a good PR team. Yes, absolutely. Quite a good customer reference, isn't it? We were able to take down a, co- a company for six weeks. Yeah. Uh, come, come and join us. Make it, make it better. Mm. The Times really adverti- has the Times really got a job advert for them? They've not got the actual advert up. They've just got um, an article about how they've, um, off the back of the Travelex um, oh. hacking, they're looking for more hackers with expert computer skills, fluent Russian, and a portfolio oh, of the previous work you've done. Good grief. So this tells you your fact before. <laughs> yeah. Because the other thing is, I don't know if anyone has, because it's certainly not been in the UK news, it's probably been in the German news, but the same group recently hacked a German automotive parts company mm. called Gadia, yep. um, who, who ha, are in a way, so the, the impact on their business is almost as great, but the... Uh, the details are slightly different because rather than just being asked for a ransom, these, this group is now threatening to release data that, you know, um, employee and customer data that they've collected. They've collected about 50 gigabytes of data, but the crunch thing there is that that included some passwords. The data that these guys managed to pull from the automotive company is probably it's quite serious in the sense that they could continue to do ongoing rates, you know, ongoing damage to the business and to employees. And so the thing I find extraordinary about this and the ransom is so low, it was only 6 million. The amount of data stolen was really low. It was five gig for Travelex and 50 gig for Gadia. I guess that's, I'm hoping that's how you say it. 
And yet the impact is so dramatic. And I, I, I have to credit Danny here because Danny um, said to me that the reason these, you know, the ransom is so low, for instance, is because it means it's just so much easier for companies to pay it rather than go through all this hassle. So in many ways, actually, I really admire companies like Gettier and TravelX that come out and are public about this because this is clearly a massive issue that companies are just dealing with below the radar. And now some of them are getting sick of it. I think there was a there was a piece from might have been BBC. I'll, I'll dig out the link, but it was said the FBI said 145 million has been paid. Mm. People, some you know, they're doing this for a reason. Some people are paying, aren't they? Just like mm. spam. Somebody somewhere is clicking on it, which makes it worthwhile. Mm. Exactly. Someone's getting those pills. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and and to that wider point too about not paying. I mean, there is there is that argument too that say you do pay. Who's to say then that the hackers aren't in cahoots with another team of hackers who then say in their bed, there you go, guys, there's, uh, there's details on a company we've hacked, they paid, and, and that's your backdoor into how they've, uh, how they've exposed well, their IT systems, and, well, and you is, end up paying again. The thing is, is the chances are you've actually fixed all the issues with that system you know, that caused the original hackers um, were able to get in. So although they may end up sharing information, doesn't mean that you'll end up getting hit a second time from a different group well i guess i guess it depends on how quickly you actually put in remediation whether you think that the remediation is just to pay and have your systems back up and like head in the sand and it won't happen again i think the bigger risk sorry i think the bigger risk is that you pay and that you don't get your systems back right that that you pay the six million they don't they i mean they are hackers after all um and they they don't turn your systems back on or uh, unencrypt your 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 environment and then you know, raise the bill. Okay, thanks for the first six million. That was payment number one, right? Um, give me another six million, and then I'll release your stuff, mm-hmm. right? I think that's probably the bigger risk in dealing with these folks, rather than them selling off your stuff. Now, that being said, they might, you know, burn burn the candle at both ends and and get you to pay and sell off the information anyway. Oh. And and maybe they do unencrypt your 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 environment, but they they've made some money selling whatever data they were able to gleam to begin yep. with because what they could if they're getting really sneaky about it is they could put a back door in there exactly yeah anyway on on this topic okay the gadia one the reason they were able to get in was because there's a vpn that wasn't patched it called pulse secure now the patch was published in april 2019 so this is a clear itam issue there that says we're not maintaining and updating a piece of equipment, but it's, guess what? It's not a server. It's not a laptop. It's not a desktop that was the, the weakness here. It was a VPN. It was something that really most IT asset managers probably rarely think about or are asked to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it also alongside that is VPNs usually have um, certificates associated with them and We've had a few instances recently of, of certificates um, expiring and taking down services and so on. I think um, Microsoft Teams was down a few weeks ago because they Microsoft forgot to renew an SSL certificate. I mean, real basic stuff. Um, and, and there's this ongoing question, is our certificates part of um, IT asset management? Or uh, security. Remember yeah. that O2 outage as well, where the, the whole of the UK couldn't die outside the UK. That was a certificate as well, wasn't it? That was the yeah. certificate, yes, it was. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm aware of uh, ITAM tools that part of what they do is 
check on 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 certificate expiry um, and report on that. So, you, so it is something that you could be doing. I, I've personal experience of, of this, and I ended up owning that process um, mainly because I put my head above the PowerPoint and said, "Who's looking after certificates?" <laughs> and it ended up being me. <clears throat> um, they're easy to manage, though, AJ. Right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. This is what yeah. this is what is bizarre. Why IT asset managers often push back on owning on managing certificates? You know, they're so important, but they're actually relatively easy to manage. Auto renew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like they're expensive are they but I, I'm, not in the scheme of things right i mean they can't uh, some of them can be relatively pricey you know i, I wouldn't want to go and buy um one out of my own personal checking account um but um with that being said you know if it's this this five you know, five hundred to ten thousand dollar certificate right um and my business turning off uh auto renew if I didn't exactly. need it, oh well. I'd rather I'd rather pay that ten grand once a year, and and not need it. Mm. I think this um, until somebody figures it out. Until the issue with TravelX runs deeper than this, though, because there's there was correspondence. I think in your article, AJ, that, that we can put in the show notes, there's mm. correspondence that says that the TravelX team were notified of the vulnerability yes. by external parties prior. So it's it's not a case of them not knowing. It's a case of them not getting round to fixing it. Um, yeah. And I think you've covered this before, David. I think you did an article for us around just because you've discovered some stuff that's unused doesn't mean you've got the resource to remove it. And I think this is a, you know, somebody's dropped the ball somewhere, basically. Well, I doubt that there's a company or an organisation in the country that doesn't have unpatched vulnerabilities because they're just everywhere and most companies don't prioritise it in terms of resourcing because they're, they're busy keeping the lights on in terms of keeping the business running and stuff like that. Uh, but this is why you need to be maintaining, uh, maintaining your active risk register that says, we're aware of these issues, I'm going to escalate them and make sure senior people know about them Yep. But it's not my decision. I, you know, it's not my decision to say yay or nay. It's a senior person's decision to say yay or nay. And and that's absolutely vital because otherwise, if you do know about it and only you know about it, then well, it's mm. your fault. Um, mm. And uh, as we know, they will always try and find the lowliest person to blame and fire. So, um, yes, you know, you have to get you have to get these risks exposed and um, and someone to own them, um, ideally. But um, certainly not you. Or if, if you can't find anyone to own them, at least it's acknowledged by senior management that nobody's owning them. Yeah. You know? yeah. Can I come to uh, specifically Danny and, and Brett? What, is this within your remit typically? Are you, you know, it's, it's almost like a peripheral, peripheral thing, isn't it? It's not, it's not um, core to an item role. But you yes. So on, on our one, Martin, um, we've had a number of conversations about this, and actually it's been bubbling around for a, a, about a year um, before I ended up joining the organization. You know, it's been passed to ITAM previously, um, and it's one of those things that actually, you know, these are security certificates in the end one. It's not software, you know, or anything else like that. So although they're an asset, you know, and you could say it comes under IT asset management rather than SAM, um, normally, this ends up sitting under security, but security don't like to own it. The business normally has a problem with certificates as well because they can either be one-year, two-year, three-year certificates. So 
you know, they, you then have to ensure that your procurement system is up to date in order so that you get the certificates renewed in time. They tend not to auto-renew. Um, very, very few of them end up auto-renewing. Um, and what businesses would like, um, they've, they've made it quite clear a number of times, which is, ends up being quite resisted, is they would like to buy a certificate that's a lifetime certificate. It's their company. Do you know what I mean? So as far as they're concerned is why can't I just buy one that lasts forever? You know, I'll pay half a million pound now and never have to worry about this. SSL certificates, I don't think that's legal anymore. They used to be able to do five year ones, but I think regulation kicked in a few years ago. So the max SSL certificate you can renew now is three years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but and, and you've still got some of the probably five year ones that are still ready to run out, but yeah, they would like a lifetime one. I was going to say, um, you know, for, from an ITAM perspective, right? Um, or the, the certificate perspective, absolutely correct. My past experience is that the the business side, the actual tracking of when do these things expire, um, when uh, what terms are they on, who are we buying through, those sorts of things would go through the ITAM piece. The where are they allocated and how are they being leveraged or deployed? That went through somebody else, usually security, um, and that's generally how I've done it in the past. In my current world, it's all managed by security. They're all on top of it. It's all in their 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 ball game. And I'm more than happy to leave it there. Um <laughs> have at it. Um but uh yeah one having a relationship too with, with your certificate provider, right? And understanding that you know how many providers do I have or keeping a regular cadence with them, that also helps keep that on the radar. Right, yeah, uh, being able that they're looking out. Hey, these are coming up. You're knowing who to reach out to when you have questions, or um, you're expecting something to need renewal, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Your details might be, you know, a, a little foggy. Um, maintaining that vendor relationship is, is I found to be very helpful, um, especially being an ITAM guy and not being a security guy, not being a certificate. You know, it's not my daily, day to day kind of thing. Um, you know, maintaining that vendor relationship I found valuable. Yeah, certainly from a technical perspective, certificate management is complicated. It's one of these things that it's, it's a classic thing where it's a little bit, there's lots of steps involved and you don't do it very often and no one documents it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it affects live services that are typically facing the public. So it's a, it's a classic storm of kind of, you know, unfamiliarity and all oh, this might break something. Um, and, and it gets overlooked and it's kind of like a minor thing and maybe it's even that it's because they don't cost very much they're not seen to be important you've got you've got you've got a 500 dollars certificate supporting your entire business in some cases so it is really really important but it doesn't cost very much and it's one of those classic things that fred looks after it and he keeps the, all the records perfectly aligned in a spreadsheet and then when fred goes the knowledge mm-hmm. of that spreadsheet disappears as well it's not because there's not enough of them to justify anything else yeah. spreadsheet. And Absolutely. as we all know uh, Excel is the world's best and well not the best Excel is the most well known uh, sorry the most used sound tool in the world yes yeah absolutely the other thing I came across was a little article that said um, one of the employees was saying that everybody had their laptops or their PCs color-coded if they had been infected then they were given a red and it had to be taken away and 
rebuild or whatever you would do to them. And if it was given a green, it meant that it wasn't infected. And I thought, oh, that's oh, that's so exciting. There's IT asset management in the news. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen often. <laughs> Particularly Pam, yeah. Mm, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, that that to do that and to make sure, particularly if it's something like a, a worm or a virus that could just spread very easily from one or two infected machines, you really do need to know exactly what, what your hardware is. And that's a, a fantastic illustration of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess probably we should move on a little bit and talk about um, the role that the ITAM team at TravelX might have been playing in this. We don't know whether they, they even have an ITAM team. But what sort of things would they be getting up to on day one, week one, month one um, of this? Um, well, you, you mentioned certificates, but a lot of this boils down to is a certain software or firmware patched to the right level? Mm. And some SAM tools, for example, are not designed that way. They're designed to say, I need the addition or the version because uh, that's all I need for licensing. I don't need to know the umpteenth firmware update level because, frankly, I don't need that to do the job. So it's... It, it, it's but some tools do do that and, and have that as a feature. So, Although they have that as the raw data, or uh, you know, most of the tools have that as the raw data. It just means the SAM manager has to go in there to actually extract that raw data and create additional reports for security, which is something I end up doing because security ends up being a big stakeholder into SAM. I think there's a couple of issues there. One is you need to, security needs to be aware that you've got that sort of data. If you do, like if you're the right person to hold that data. So if you are an organisation which has configuration management separate from software asset management, then security would be going to the configuration management team to find out that information. But a lot of organisations, particularly smaller ones, have you know, that sort of data is just kept within the software asset management team because they're the, the team that use asset data most frequently. But a lot of the time, people don't really realise the depth of data that software asset managers hold. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, in security-minded organisations, often that is actually that data is held by security and not so much SAM, right? So Qualys is a great example. Um, Qualys is intended to seek out vulnerabilities. Um, to look for low uh, systems that aren't patched up to the highest or newest releases, right? Um, well, there's lots of, you know, ITAM reviews done a multiple analysis on, on Qualys before. Qualys is not an a, a SAM or ITAM tool. It's a security vulnerability management system. Um, there's lots of juicy data in there, and that tends to live, at least in my experience, with the security folks, not so much the SAM folks, right? Mm. So. I think it kind of, as Kelly was saying, it sort of depends on the organization, right? Smaller ones, that might be the role of SAM. Larger ones, it might be a, a separate group, maybe configuration management. And in very security-minded areas, that, that information would be of the utmost importance to security directly, right? So they might be obtaining them themselves. I think if they had gone to the um, config team asking them what this has been impacting, you're probably going to get them shrugging going, we haven't mapped that CI yet. Really sorry, can't tell you what it's impacting. Yeah, my experience, my experience on the larger companies I'm working with at the moment is that they, just, they will track some certificates. Um, so I had a reminder recently about one but they never followed it up. It's only when it actually expired and then they started to follow it up. So 
there's bits of processes in place for these things, but in reality, it just slips through the net too often. And I think this is what happens. I mean, I, I was doing some work um, with one client yesterday looking at different versions of VPN software installed on their laptops. 20 different versions across their estates of about 30,000 devices. So how can security be actually doing their job? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Shows value, I think, too, if you're going to be proactive about this, of having sort of risk management engaged as well. So you're, pre, you're, you're proactive on this kind of stuff rather than waiting for stuff to fall off the IT estate. But a lot of risk managements, they still don't understand the value of IT in the risk management for organizations because, again, in helping someone with an audit, <clears throat> their estimated value is it's about 3% of their IT spend is what they think their risk at. Uh, they went to the risk management, so corporate risk, corporate risk weren't interested. But to me, that's reputational damage as well if they had to pay that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's not just the... It's just not it's not just financial risk, it's everything else that comes along alongside it. Well don't forget risk management ends up being much more important for financial organizations because of you know reg regulatory stuff. So you know the the old if we don't do things in um, with our assets within IT, then in theory we could end up with massive fines as well as not just from the vendor but from actually regulatory bodies. So it become risk management can be very useful. But what they end up end up doing is they, they end up just logging the risk. It's still up to IT operations to make those changes. So although we say security will tell us where all these gaps are with with patch levels and everything else, and we you know a lot of companies use Coalis. You know it's a good it's a good tool for finding those out. IT operations still have to have the money to go and patch those gaps and bring them up to the right level. And often it's not seen by the business um, when they're, they're looking at giving the, or setting the budgets each year. So you end up with this technical debt that just keeps growing for organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Just to wrap up on TravelX, um, is there any, anything we can learn from this? What, what can we, how can we help our friends in security? Because as Danny mentioned, they're a key partner, key uh, stakeholder. What can we do proactively to help with this sort of thing? The, the VPN versions is a good example. Um, and we, we've got access to all the raw data the tools use. So find some examples. And when in one of my previous companies, we used to have a blacklist of software, things like um, uh, Wireshark or those sort of things, where if we found them, we just reported them to security. Um, even if they weren't asking for them, you know, in my opinion, they shouldn't be installed in a network. And eventually they start to come to you and um, they realize what value you've got because some of their tools won't always give you that information. With some, some tools as well, you can automate that um, blacklisted report to go out monthly with any new installs. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and we used to do that as well. Well, it would be securities. It's like games and stuff like that goes over to them. You know, to me, I don't really mind if people have games on their machines because in the end, one, you know, people may be in hotels. You've got to allow people to have a life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, to me, that's security's job to ensure that those um, assets are taken off people's machines. Yeah, it's um, not your decision to make. Yeah. All we do is report into it, but it is a very good way of getting the security on board when you end up giving them reports each month 
then when they look at making changes, they end up including you in the meetings. So even if that meeting isn't actually of use to you at that present moment in time, knowing what security are doing in the future can be really quite useful to, to help mature your sound practice as well. Well, I would add, don't just send across a load of raw data. No. <laughs> no. Give it a bit of a interpretation. Yeah. And compare, but also compare it with what has happened in the past because often it's the change that is that is really interesting, you know, more interesting to security than the fact that they have X number of unpatched versions of whatever software is the fact that X is growing rapidly and has increased threefold in the last three months. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's, um, it's something that I've seen from some of the SaaS tools, actually, one particular tool called um, Amplify, and they're constantly sensing traffic to SaaS applications on the network. But what they do is trigger alerts and, and workplaces and so on based on, oh, that's unusual. So, so they'll look, they'll almost kind of fingerprint the normal traffic that a user has, and then something strange happens, and that's an anomaly, and 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 they'll yeah. that'll be flagged up as being, oh, what's going on there? You know, are they trying to copy out a load of files because they're leaving? That sort of thing. Um, so there is there are tools coming that are going to start doing that stuff in a more intelligent way. Um, yeah, Cloud Spike oh. is another one that does something similar to that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm just just rewinding slightly. I think no, Jeff, your your thing about a blacklist report is a really great way of starting that conversation with with a security team because security teams are generally uh, reactive. They are they're, they're they're living in the moment. They they've got quite a short time time horizon i suppose it's kind of what's today's threat let's you know so if you can get stuff that's timely you know that will that will get their attention and then it's about building that relationship and and, and security teams the approach security teams take is that it's this is all about defense in depth so you might get through two two layers of walls but you won't get through three and data is valuable to them you know comparing what they've got to what you've got um, will immediately uncover areas maybe where someone's inventory agent isn't working um, or we're not aware of those machines or are they on a different sub subnet or something like that. Um, so there are many ways of, of kind of working together to improve both, both ITAM and security's um, um, data quality. There's also a bigger issue, which I think is pertinent particularly at the moment with coronavirus not just around security but around business continuity mm. and resilience making sure that your business can continue to function when stuff happens and I think that that is an interesting area where IT asset managers also need to start putting their thinking caps on because we because I know that I've I've worked in organizations where deploying laptops to a load of people are is a key business continuity activity but of course if you just give a laptop to somebody and they put it aside at home it's not patched it's not updated they, it's going to take them three quarters of an hour to get back on to the network if they're asked to work at home for instance yep. and then that business continuity laptop itself becomes a vulnerability so there's actually some bigger issues around here which i think we 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 could discuss or think about in terms of business continuity and how what role ITAM plays in helping keep the business running if something like COVID-19 hits. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, the, you know, business continuity, there is, a, there is a very, very big ITAM component for that because what will happen in, in the event of a disaster where, you know, where the company's trying to get it back on its feet, all your processes will go out of the window and you can very, very quickly end up building up a huge non-compliance, um, which will then take time to tidy up. Or you will run into um, restrictions around number of seats deployed and so on if you, if you have that sort of thing in, in your software contracts. So you've got that to worry about. But actually, it, it's just also being involved in this service restoration um, process. Mm-hmm. So have you, got, have you got media? How quickly can you build laptops and get them out the door with the right software that's activated and working properly? Um, for the coronavirus thing, um, I, I know here, here in the UK, um, Chevron and a couple of others sent home their entire offices um, a couple of days ago because of a potential um, concern. Um, and that, oh, all go and work from home. It doesn't work that way because um, going back to VPN software, that VPN software has capacities that, that you no, know, it's a bit like I would say it's a bit like concurrent use um, licensing metrics. You know. They're not designed for have your entire business suddenly all working from home. Mm. Um, you know they don't have the capacity. They may not even be may not even have license capacity for it. I know uh, where I was working previously, we had we were licensed for about a quarter of the employees for for VPN access and and so on. You know that was that was a physical limitation on on the hardware devices at the time. So there's much to consider. Yeah. You mentioned hardware devices as well, there, AJ. If you've got a desktop and you've well, got yeah, to work yeah. from home, <laughs> you've got to talk to your ham guys about getting some laptops in and sharpish. And mm-hmm. bearing in mind, where are most of the laptops and components manufactured? Mm-hmm. Yep. China. Yeah. Yep. So, mm-hmm. moving on, new feature scaremongering of the month. So, <laughs> we, do, we have, uh, do we have a jingle for this? You need some sort of spooky music going in the background, don't you? Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, something maybe the, maybe the Exorcist theme or something. <laughs> It'd just be like, the, like Jaws or something. Jaws. <laughs> Jaws. <laughs> Welcome to the Scaremongering of the Week. So, Scaremongering of the of the week, month, whatever quarter. Uh, VMware licensing change. What's going on here, and is it scaremongering to flag this to people, or is it just run-of-the-mill stuff? Absolutely scaremongering. Um, your VMware costs will absolutely, I promise you, double. There you go. All done. <laughs> we scared them enough now. <laughs> no, I, think- I, I mean, I'll say the first time I saw it, right, when it popped up in my world, um, it... it Definitely got me on edge for a minute. I was like, oh boy, this is not going to be good, right? And then I, as I dug in and I, and I read deeper, I realized this isn't going to affect me at all based on our ESX hosts, based on um, the way that our environment is set up and our CPU counts and, and whatnot. I am not going to see a spike whatsoever. So, you know, there was a lot of news out there that, that made people kind of get pretty anxious, right? Um, they're... Yeah. they're I could see a lot of you know eyebrows went up, right, um, and 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 whatnot. But after a little bit of research um, and and perusing the ITAM review, um, can you can you share your understanding? So what have they done, and why do you think they've done that? I'll put 
put me on the freaking spot. I, I, basically, <laughs> what they've done is that the actual licensing metric isn't changing at all. It's still the CPU approach. But what they're saying now is that once you hit 32 physical cores and go over that, you're going to need more licenses. So actually, like Brett said, a lot of organizations don't even go up that high, right? However, if you do go over it, that's when you're going to start to need more licenses. So say, for example, now you've got two CPUs and 48 cores each. That's two CPU licenses. However, under the new minimums, if you like, that will be four CPU licenses. So you're actually doubling the license count, but no pricing. Uh, and this is where my status on LinkedIn got accused of scaremongering, etc., no pricing has actually been released yet for how much those additional licenses will be, although common sense kind of suggests that they're probably going to be heavily discounted due to your investment in VMware anyway. Um, so your licensing costs won't double, but if you do have these freak huge um, VMware infrastructures, then your licensing will um, definitely increase. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't double. You know, in the end one, VMware charges $100 for the CPU or processor license. All they're saying is now, if you've got over 32 cores, you have to pay for an additional license. So that's just an extra $100 as far as they're concerned. So I don't see, I can't see them discounting anything, but yeah, they haven't come out and said anything. I mean, although we know most most people don't have more than 32 cores within their processors at the moment anyhow, but what it does say is that, although it may not be affecting you now, is when you were looking at the 64 core processors or when you're looking at more processors that are getting more cores in them for future use, then you may have had roadmaps for the next two or three years to replace your SX farms and those roadmaps now, which may have had signed off budgets of, let's say, 11 million pounds to go and put the stuff in, now may be costing 18, 19 million pounds. Yeah. So what we're not what we're forgetting here is actually people have a roadmap. Normally, that's three to five years on, on things they're doing within their own IT parts. It may not hit you today, but it may be hitting your roadmap that you may already have signed off. Yeah, and it, it's you know it's the same as the recent change to Windows Server um, from per processor to per core licensing. And for a lot of organisations, and certainly for, for what I was managing, our renewal costs for our SA went up 50% because of the change in core licensing. So it's, it, you need to understand, and also this is, a, this is an example where you need to feed back into your technology teams and your architecture teams that, no, this is what it means. Um, have a think about what you're buying because you, you can buy 16 core processors, 24 core processors, and you'll be fine. If, you, if there's someone there who thinks, oh, look at this really, really fast, dense processor, let's go and buy it, it's going to save us money, when well, no, suddenly it's not going to because you've got a license cost on top of it. I, um, I disagree about the, the whole immediate increase in licenses. I disagree with because I think this is now similar to when Microsoft forced everyone down the cause route. Everyone self-declared how many CPUs they've got and how many cores, and just demanded that Microsoft gives them the equivalent because changing the license metrics halfway through a period of time is, you know, daylight robbery. But yeah. So, and and I've been advising people now with VMware just to declare, right, I, I've got this many CPUs. You're telling me I need to have this many licenses in the future. I want the equivalent ones now. But it's still. Um, it's, it, I agree that that's probably what will happen, um, but it's still going to increase your support costs in year 
well, it depends on, on on what agreement you're on, but maybe next year or maybe in three years' time, sure. the cost is going to go up. Yeah, so. and buying new ones will obviously incur an increased cost, but they shouldn't be. I think people are quite rightly. I think people aren't aren't quite don't quite understand it properly yet. But I think um, to have the conversations quite quickly with VMware and say, look, I I'm not paying for additional licenses because you've changed the licensing rules halfway through the term of an agreement. Hmm. Um, you give me the equivalent ones now I think and just they, do a conversion rate Jeff I think they are doing that though because they're saying that if you can prove that you'd brought the additional licenses beforehand they're going to do a yeah they have said that right yeah. so, uh, so we know it isn't going to cost anyone anything now but again it still could cost 50% more on your budget for future purchases that you yeah. intended on doing for things you may have already got signed off, roadmaps, et cetera, et cetera. But I also think that a lot of organizations, when Microsoft did the same thing, Microsoft had similar rules, and a lot of organizations failed to document the fact that they had had um, you know, high, price, high uh, core counts, et cetera. And so a lot of companies, when they then went, particularly if they were um, non-compliant to start with, which you know, did happen, they got caught out because they hadn't done the documentation and they didn't have the records to demonstrate what they'd actually owned at the time and what they were using at the time. So I absolutely would say to people, yes, it's all very well saying you can you can use the, you know, you can convert licences to the, to the modern metric with no impact, but you have to make sure you're documenting everything and you have to be able to say, right, at this on this date, we're using this and this and this and this as evidence in five years, six years' time. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And um, uh, you know, if you had a non-standard Microsoft conversion, which I think was typically four to one, wasn't it, for cores to CPUs? Mm. Some people were getting eight or ten to one because they already had the high-density cores in their environment. That was never fully recognised in any MLS statements in the conversion. So exactly. it was down to you to maintain that documentation. So it's the same. The same advice we have to give everyone for the VMware environment: document it, frame it, put it wherever the most appropriate places, but never lose it. Mm, exactly. And, and get it signed off by your VMware account rep or, or whoever. Um, just one final quick point on this as well. Of course, is this is a this is a under thirty-two, over thirty-two. So you could be in a situation where where you buy those extra processor licenses, but you're not getting full value for them because um, you may have a 48-core processor rather than a 64-core processor, so you're paying you're paying more for those extra cores. It's a bit like um, if you switch hyperthreading on on a SQL Server cluster, um, that's never cost-effective um, in terms of pure licensing cost, in terms of bang per buck, because um, you don't get double the processing power. Um, so. A kind of a technical point, um, but um, yeah, it just means you need to think about your architectural hardware design um, and, and cover it off. I, I, I came across this uh, in real life um, where the architects changed the spec halfway through a project and they didn't understand that the licensing cost was was going to increase because we were going to um, higher density cores. Um, it's classic ITAM architecture technical infrastructure conversation to have. Just to finish on the VMware, there's a, there's a report from Flexera recently on IT spend trends for 2020 and beyond, and I'll, I'll see if I can dig out a link and put it in the show notes. And it was 
where do you plan to spend your money? And no surprises to see Microsoft and Amazon service now at the top and VMware was one of the lowest, as in there was a biggest shift away from uh, VMware. So it's, that one's worth a read. Job of the week. ITS at Program Manager. First Hawaiian bank. So, Brett, just correct me on my geography here. So, this is still under US law and scrutiny and banking regulation, presumably. Absolutely, yeah. Hawaii is a, unit, is a US state, just like uh, any other on, on the main, you know, 48, um, including Alaska. So, it abides by all the same rules and regulations as every other um, US bank would have to abide by. Right. And I'm absolutely sure that every single person who listens to this who's in Hawaii is going to be banging their head on the table at that question. Everybody, Martin has a very English <laughs> accent. <laughs> I thought Americans were supposed to be oblivious to the word. If it was Puerto Rico, that would be different. That would be an uh, interesting yeah. jurisdiction question. Kylie, Kylie, my role here is to play dumb, and I, I do it well. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. You are doing great. You're doing great. Keep it up, Martin. Hey, maybe we should get them to dial in on the next call if they are actually based in Hawaii and we can ask them about what it's like. Yeah, yeah. good plan. <laughs> How far away are you from the beach? No one's that far. <laughs> I think everyone's looking, looking out the window at the rain at the moment. Having with that My underlying out. point was that it's a fantastic location, but it's actually probably quite a demanding role because it's got all of the US banking regulation to look after mm. and it's hardware and software um and it's all about compliance so um yeah looks like a very full-on role um it'd be it'd be interesting to ask them actually how many times they've been audited how many times has somebody got in a helicopter or a plane and gone out and actually audited the bank more than you think rory i'm sure a lot Absolutely. Everyone yeah, will I take any excuse in. to go to Hawaii. Oh, yeah, just Absolutely. Over. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, the office here in the U.S., uh, one of the primary auditors from a regulatory perspective of United uh, U.S. banks is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, uh, OCC for short. Um, and they, they audit everything about a bank, not just your IT systems, but they're looking at, you know, how do you run your bank, right? Um, and after 2009, they got very... Uh, studious about ensuring that everyone is operating their banks um you know appropriately uh, and i can only imagine that the occ auditors are more than happy to fly out to honolulu on a moment's notice to <laughs> drop everything to uh to audit yeah. so I, I can only imagine that this i10 program manager whoever does end up taking this role um, will have no shortage of, of work to do um from a regulatory perspective but it's covering a lot of bases now if they're doing hardware software and then a key focus on compliance that for one person, that's kind of uh, and all the it sounds to me like this. Perhaps the Bank of Honolulu doesn't have a an established or mature ITAM program, and they're looking for someone to come in, maybe uh, and build one, or perhaps they're hoping that this person can just come in and do it all, um, and and not really understanding that that. That's probably not feasible unless they're, you know, I don't know, Rory or you know, Kylie or AJ or uh, one of one of the other people I get to share uh, this time with. Um, but you know, coming in and trying to do that all is, is not easy. Trust me, I know. 
Um, and it, it, it's definitely not a one, one man or one woman show, right? So to what extent do you think it's about building a business case for? Uh, the, the, yeah, that's certainly in, in, in the job description. And I, it seems to me that it's, it is very much compliance driven, which is probably what you'd expect in a bank as well. It's kind of, and, and by compliance, this is regulatory compliance. This isn't, it, this isn't compliance with software licensing um, uh, rules and um, ELPs and things. This is, this, is, this is the industry in which they're working. Before we go on to Jargon Buster, just a quick message to Barry. Our sympathies from the radio show team. Uh, Barry's recently had a, a bereavement in the family and ba Barry's raising funds for Alzheimer's and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. We'll do our best to pick up Jargon Buster without you because it is quite technical and I am slightly worried. <laughs> AJ, are you taking the mantle, are you? Well, I'll, I'm happy to have a stab at Jargon Buster if that's what we're moving on to next. As long as you don't end up having to be cut off by Martin like Stuart was because everyone else had fallen asleep, you'll, you'll do fine. That okay. one never actually made it out. That, that Stuart's contribution remains on <laughs> <laughs> <Like>, Jargon Buster! <laughs> Jargon Buster! So Jargon Buster, uh, IAS, PASS and SAS, what's the difference between those three via the medium of cake? Via the medium of cake is, is, is a challenge. Um, so I'm just going to start talking and see where, they, see where this goes. So we may turn, get down multiple rabbit holes. So IAS, infrastructure as a service. PASS, platform as a service. SAS, software as a service. Uh, the key is in the end bit, it is as a service. Um, so these are things that you buy from someone else to do things that you would have done normally as an IT department in-house. Um, so infrastructure as a service is your, is your, think of that as your data center. Um, SaaS is your applications, your software. Um, and uh, platform as a service is, is going beyond that really. So... Um, they're all kind of the same thing, and you, you do end up having them kind of bandied around, particularly in an ITAM context. They are subtly different, but it, this, what, it's, what it's doing is changing how you're managing things. Public cloud, you hear people talk about public cloud, they're, they're talking about Google. Um, so I, I, by the medium of cake, I think SaaS is getting a cake delivered to your house, finished, because you're just getting cake as a service. Platform as a service is closest to buying the sponges at a shop and then finishing it off yourself because you've got the cake, the platform ready to apply your own bits and pieces to it. And infrastructure as a service is when you're, you're buying like all the raw materials and you make the cake yourself. Well, I think Barry's got a competitor for next week, uh, next time. I don't know if you can hear that, Martin, but that's my slow clap. That was That's well done. Slow clap, well done. That's pretty, yeah, I think that's almost there. That's stolen from the pizza analogy, which I'll put a show, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. There's a well-known pizza analogy which compares IAS, PASS, and SAS as, as pizza. Oh, so it wasn't your own work. Um, uh, I've just liberated that and made it good. Uh, that's uh, that, that. Take back the clapping, Brett. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all back. Barry, Barry is the reigning king. <laughs> <laughs> With that, 
that's the podcast. Thank you, guys. See you next time. Adios. Thank you for having us.